Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I am Ark Purcell. I am the founding host of the podcast. I've been crewing up on sets for over 10 years. I've worked on dozens of parts and features, either as a producer or director, and I'm just finishing up my first feature film as a writer-director called Falternet. And you're also wearing your alternate shirt for those watching on YouTube. Ha-ha! I'm Liz Manichel. I'm a writer-director producer uh, with two features under my belt uh, and a third somewhere out there around the corner. I'm a former film critic and a current distribution consultant who used to manage the creative distribution initiative at Sundance. Um, Cool. Okay, so this week we have editor Myron Kirstein on the show to talk about editing the new musical In the Heights. Um, In the Heights is the uh, film adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's Broadway hits that he made before doing Hamilton. It's amazing. The movie's amazing. Everyone go watch it. And this movie was directed by John Chu of Crazy Rich Asians fame. Uh, Myron talks to us about how he got into editing, uh, his approach on how he cut such a highly anticipated film as this one. And he also edited Crazy Rich Asians, um, episodes of Girls and Garden State. Check it out. Uh, I thought it was such a lovely time talking to Myron. Anyway, we're going to jump right into the interview first. Uh, and then afterwards, we have a Get Shorty from yet another Australian filmmaker. And this one's called I'm Your Fool. And then we have, uh, we read a listener email. So without further words, uh, here's our conversation with Myron. We're here with Myron Kirstein, the editor on the new film In the Heights, which everyone is either loving or can't wait to see. I'm in the can't wait to see category. Um, please, Myron, can you give us an elevator pitch for In the Heights? In the Heights is about the story of this community. It's about Washington Heights, which is um, on the, I guess, the upper, uh, upper, upper, upper uh, uh, top of the Manhattan, the island of Manhattan, and it's it's mostly um, made up of, of uh, uh, Latinx. People don't like that term, but or but uh, Latin uh, uh, people of color and Dominicans and people from um, Puerto Rico and um, and I uh, love the film. Yeah, I love working on it. <laughs> For the record, I'm in the loving the film camp, just so we're 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 aware of um, our affinities here. Um, how many days did you shoot, or, or how many days are you aware the production committed to shooting this film? I believe it was 48 days total. Um, I think it was. I believe it was slated at first for 43 days, and then we shot an additional five days later, deep in post. Do you have any idea what the rough budget is of the film? Uh, 50 million. 50 million. Wow. How long did you personally spend working on the film, from being brought on and prep and everything to its release right now? I mean, I've been working on it a solid two years. I mean, I've, there was a hiatus there of six months during the pandemic where like everybody was not working on anything, um, just staying at home, wishing that this movie would be out in the universe. Um, but, um, but we also ended up working on it more, uh, um, with that after that break. And then our question normally is, was, was how big was your crew? But, um, since you probably weren't on set all the whole time, how big was your editing team? I had about a team of 20. Um, I had, um, led by my assistant editor, my first assistant, Andrew Pang, and then the second, Elliot Traeger. And then I had two amazing music editors, uh, um, uh, Jennifer Dunnington and Jim Bruning. And I had an amazing, uh, VFX, um, supervisor, uh, Mark Russell, um, Tim Dunnington was a VFX editor. And anyways, I can go on for a while, but uh, basically, um, yeah, had a very large crew um, for 98% of the job. And then it was just me alone in my living room later in the pandemic and my first assistant in his living room in New York. I was in LA then, and then John Chu in his living room at his house in LA. So, you know, it was, but most of the time I was this big giant machine, you know, all trying to um, 
just be at service to John and I to cut the film, you know, a big support staff to get us to the finish line. Uh, compared to all the other projects that you've edited, how difficult was this one? Uh, it was it was the most difficult for sure. Um, there was so many moving parts, not only the music components, but, um, you know, the different storylines, the different locations. There's a lot of complex VFX in this show, even though you don't, you know, obviously we have... Um, big VFX sequences like uh, when the sun goes down and dancing inside of the building, but also things that you wouldn't know there is VFX or basically in almost every scene. So I want to hear about like what your process was. Like, were you editing the project from like day two, like right when they're shooting? Like, are you getting dailies in? Are you starting your process right there and like building an assembly for John or like, like tell us how it all went down. Yeah, I started basically a week before um, production started and John showed me rehearsal footage and um, animatics cut together um, to just kind of give me an, an idea of just the vibe of the show. And right away I was filled with tears just seeing rehearsal footage. And he said, remember that feeling? And I took that feeling all the way through dailies. So um, yeah, basically I was getting a mountain of dailies every day. And I would spend uh, painstakingly, you know, just sift through those, watch the dailies, make selects, cut a little section of a, of a musical performance, cut a little scene if there was a little scene. Um, and I would ship what I could to John over the, over the course of the shoot. Um, occasionally there was problems with a scene. We had to reshoot a couple of scenes here and there because of issues with like makeup or issues, just technical reasons. and. Um, you know, just try to be a support for John as he was, you know, immersed in this really, I mean, $50 million is actually not a lot of money for this scale, but it, it almost, almost all your budget goes away when you make anything in New York City, let alone make it with extras and have locations. And so they, it was kind of, it sounds strange, but we were kind of like a gigantic indie film running around the city trying to make this thing. And so I had to be like, I had to be as much, you know, just up to camera, um, at least watching the dailies um, as I could as, you know, as possible. And then just, just cutting and, you know, assembling. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think I had the, the whole film together two weeks after they were done um, with principal, like I had a pass of it. Can you extend that discussion of process to that time you said you were in your living room and your first AE was in his living room and John's. And, um, so are you using, I mean, are you cutting virtually or what is the process of the three of you? Yeah. So, um, John, uh, sorry, my Andy Pang and myself both had, both had basically a mirror copy of like local drives on Avid's in our living rooms. But then we were using this uh, this program called Evercast and streaming basically to John, um, and he he could see basically my Avid uh, streamed into just a Chrome, just a Chrome um, website, um, and then um, and then we could just make tweaks together like on the fly as if we were in the edit room together. Um, it's very um, internet dependent, you know, the speed at which things can happen, but it seemed to work pretty, pretty flawlessly with us. And then is the communication through Evercast or do you also have to be on like Zoom as well? It's usually through Evercast, but um, we were having a hard time with uh, some of the sync, you know, sync is so important with, um, with a musical. So we opted to basically take out the component um, of seeing our seeing our little basically you see little bubbles like a like a version of zoom in the bottom of your sort of screen and we decided not to use that and just do everything on FaceTime <laughs> FaceTime on a different a different monitor. Wow. Um yeah. but since then I've actually worked on shows where I was literally looking at the showrunner in their little bubble, you know, or the director in their little bubble and doing it that way. But for for uh, for this show and, and also by the way, this was brand new when like like evercast it was all brand new to us so we are totally doing everything on the fly um since we've finished working the film like almost the entire industry is working on some version of evercast or some other like streaming um platform in which you know they can work with their uh co-collaborators but um 
but it was, we're just like, what is the best sink? Okay. It's this way. Okay. Let's not mess with it. Let's move on. And, you know, you know, you said you had this, this 20 person team that's working with you. Like when you're getting your dailies in, like, are they being passed through your assistant editor before they come to you first? Or like, what does that process look like? Yeah, there was such, there was so much organization that went into, um, into just preparing it for me, everything from just making sure that all the footage came in, there was, you know, transferred correctly, meaning that whatever was shot on set actually got to them in the cutting room. And then there might be two, three, four cameras are all being shot at the same time. So sometimes they'll literally group them all together. That way I could see multi cameras all going at once. And then there was this component of the music, which was basically in every scene. So they had to make sure that I had all the elements for the music. And oftentimes I wanted um, all the vocals separated from each other versus like, so if I had like, you know, seven people in a number, I want them all separated from each other. Um, and also I want the uh, chorus separated from them. And then I want the instrumentals separated. So there was a lot of organization just to give me a single take, you know, or a camera angle. And then from there, it was like, so one, one assistant was literally prepping we use this program called Script Sync. So I could also have, I could click on a vocal line and bring up a take very quickly. So there was basically, you know, eight hours of processing into the with the assistants to get me the footage. And, you know, that happened every day. I'm I was making of- a question really quick. Oh, Sorry, yeah. Liz. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so... So was this movie done in the classical musical sense where the whole soundtrack is recorded in the studio beforehand and then everyone's lip syncing on set? Was that the way that you guys approached this one? Well, actually it was a hybrid. Uh, We did quite a bit of live recording as well. Um, I would say maybe like 40% of the film was live recording, like numbers like Champagne, which is actually a one meaning one shot um, scene. Um, It's completely live done by the actors on on the day or the beginning of when you're home which is um leslie grace who plays uh, nina rosario she's completely live acapella starting that number and then there's you know there's things like 96,000, the, the the beginning of that number when the boys are walking down the street like half of them are singing live uh, the other half had a cold so it, it's a bit of a mixture of both and and then so we had also a lot of pre-records but also we you know the pre-records were done way before the shooting. So some of the acting didn't always match the pre-records. So then we went back and re-recorded some vocals to match the performance of the day as well. So wow. it was a big hybrid of all of the above and trying to mix and match and try to like, just make it at the end of the day, what John and I wanted more than anything is just to make it feel all grounded. We didn't, we like, we really loved, um, we love old Hollywood musicals but we also wanted something that felt very real and, and uh, grounded into the community. It, it was about Washington Heights. And we didn't, even though they were singing songs, which in a way is, you know, takes you out of reality. We wanted, uh, we just wanted that sort of, um, yeah, that, that grounded nature to it. By the way, I watched it yesterday and on my hike, I listened to the soundtrack. And then in my, sh- in the shower, I listened to the Broadway soundtrack. Um, <laughs> so I am very fresh. Um, I'm thinking about the pandemic and using Evercast and then the traditional editorial timeline where you lock picture and you've locked picture and you never reopen it. Right. Um, there's kind of like a, a, I don't know, a, crankiness to that whole process, a good crankiness. Um, <laughs> what I'm trying to get at is it's, you mentioned that there were some additional shoot days that were added five days. I think you said, can you talk a little bit about, um, was that as a result of getting more time in the pandemic to think about this process and the delay of the release, or was it something completely different? Well, the additional shooting actually happened towards the end of the shoot because, um, they didn't, we didn't have a time to, I'm sorry, not during the shoot, during in the post, uh, actually before our first lock of post, I'll explain that in a second. That, um, so basically we had previewed most of the, most of the film for, um, uh, for literally test audiences or friends and family type screenings with stock footage, like that represented like our community chorus, for example. And also we had stock footage and Google map images that 
that basically represented aerial footage of Washington Heights. So it was incomplete in some degree, like principal photography wasn't technically really finished. Um, but we had to ask for those resources from the studio. They were just like, well, let's see the film. Let's see what you, what, see what else you need. Um, so those pickup days were actually always intended, but, um, but we didn't get them until like seven, seven, eight months into like the post process. Um, literally, um, I think our last friends and family screening was like the last time and the first time that uh, anyone saw like the, the, the last footage that we shot. Um, but editorially, we had all this time that we had locked the film and we had all this time away from it. And we thought we were done. We, you know, and we, 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 sh we shut down right as we were starting to mix. And I actually went off to do another job, which also got shut down. Um, and, um, and then John had called and said, you know, do you, um, do you want to open up picture again and see about making some trims, trying out a couple of new ideas? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And sure enough, you know, we, we took out a really big scene, um, trimmed a bunch of scenes, um, put back a small little scene. And, um, and also I spent a meticulous amount of time with the music department, just slipping sync, which is basically just frame nudging to get, you know, w words more closely into people's mouths. I didn't know that there was a nice version of the phrase frame <laughs> nudging. <laughs> can I say what it really is? Yeah, you can say the real one. Yeah, go ahead. Frame, basically it's called, we call it frame fucking. Yeah. Which is, you know, <laughs> Right. I really feel like the film improved quite a bit having that time away from it because, you know, you never feel like you ever finish a film until somebody says pencils down. And, um, you know, it was nice to have a second chance at it. Going back to open the edit, was that something that like John had to get a permission from from the studio to do? Or was that something that like he was just allowed to do on his own just because he felt that the movie needed to could be better? No, they um, he had to ask permission because it was going to be a cost, you know, um, but um, I think everyone was on the same page, you know, um, you know, let's the, the studio was incredibly supportive of his vision. And of course, Lynn's vision spend another $50,000 and open up, some, you know, that it's a, you know, studios are not so keen on doing that unless you have real reasons. So um, we, we had some ideas that we, we pitched them and, and um, yeah, it, it, I was happy they agreed. I want to know what's on the cutting room floor. What was the scene that you cut? What what are we missing? Well, actually, there's a really beautiful scene between Melissa Barra and Anthony Ramos that takes place at her apartment where she shows basically her fashion designs and some clothing she made. And it actually used to take place right after the scene post-blackout where um, Melissa and Anthony are on the steps and she, he confesses basically that he's always been obsessed with her. And, and so basically he used to go directly from that scene to upstairs her apartment. And she showed him basically, you know, her inspirations. And we felt like, and, and during the blackout itself, she used to discover during the blackout, like this amazing design. And instead we decided to construct it as a moment of frustration that she still couldn't um, get there yet. And the reason why we did it is we just wanted someplace to go with that character. We felt like giving her, giving her too many wins too soon was another way of not having an engine, you know, just making something too satisfying too soon. And, you know, we, the film doesn't have a lot of plot and it doesn't have a lot of engines. It's very vignette and a slice of life and anything we could just give it a little bit of a motor, any like, oh, I wish she, you know, what she's just seems so frustrated. Be like, we didn't, we just wanted to do everything we could to try to keep the audience engaged. So I want to take it away from In the Heights for just a second to talk about your collaboration with John Chu, because you guys did uh, Crazy Rich, Rich Asians together before this. And I'm just curious, like, how did that, start like how did you guys meet how did you end up on that project and you know how did it end up continuing on to this next one well i got the 
name. I, it was just a name. I heard about Crazy Rich Asians through, through my agent. And, you know, my agencies will give you like lists of like films that might end up being shot and over the course of the next year. And it's everything from like the next Avengers film, which I'll never have a chance to cut to, um, to like a tiny little indie, which is, sounds amazing, but you're like, okay, am I gonna work on a, you know, a $500,000 film? Like it's, it, so there's a big range and in the middle somewhere in there was Crazy Rich Asians. But right away I was like, I don't, I, I don't know if this, this sounds maybe racist or like, are they making fun of Asians? Like, I didn't know from the surface, like what the hell this was. I had no idea. I was, I was kind of scared, but John's name was attached to it. So I was like, okay, this is interesting, but I'm not sure. But then my buddy, Brad Simpson, um, who was a post supervisor on this film that I was an assistant on 20 years ago, this film Velvet Goldmine, which, um, which Todd Haynes directed. So he was the post supervisor. I was the assistant editor. And, you know, fast, fast forward 20 years later, he's a big time producer and he works with uh, Nina Jacobson at Color Force. And they are producing this movie. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, Brad is producing this movie? Like there's something gotta be great about this movie. And so I said to Brad, would you, A, would you send me the script? And B, can you put in a good word to John Chew because I'd like to see if I can get a meeting. And it was like, absolutely. I think you'd be perfect for it. Will you read the script? Of course I read the script. I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. I have to be part of this movie. Um, and I initially just met John through a Skype and he was already prepping the film in Malaysia. And I just had to give the, my hardest sell of a lifetime to him like I was doing, like I'm doing with you right now to convince him to hire me, knowing that, you know, he had worked with some incredibly talented editors who were very big time. And I just had to convince him to, that I had to be the person working with him. And then thank God, you know, we ended up hitting it off and really seeing eye to eye creatively on Crazy Rich Asians. Of course it helps that it did okay in the box office and did well you know, making an impact for a lot of people. And from there, he was like, do you want to keep doing some stuff? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> let's, let's go. And um, uh, so then I cut a couple pilots with them, one for Freeform called Good Trouble, which was a very cool experience. And then another show, which is dear to my heart, the show Home Before Dark on, on Apple TV Plus, um, which the second season literally premiered last week as well. And and he shot the pilot in the second episode. And then he went to go prep in the Heights. He asked me, would I be interested in working in that? I said, duh, here we go. Of course, I, a dream come true. Um, and soon enough, I got the call to come to New York and join him. So um, that's, that's it in a nutshell, you know. Amazing. Mark, should we move to final five? Let's do it. Time. I mean, I, I, we can literally talk to you for hours. <laughs> um, you know, this has been fantastic. But, but, hey, uh, fi- hey, anytime you want to do a follow up, you let me know. Oh, like, you are, oh well, so we'll I'm, be uh, taking uh, you up on that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we wouldn't offer that because we will. Yeah, I'm, I'm down. I'm down. So what's the first? Fi- we ask this, but um, you can evolve it to however you want to respond. So the question we have is, what's the first film you ever made? And how do you feel about it now? You could say first film you ever cut. But I know you've also written, directed some things of your own. So you could talk about the films that you've made and how do you feel about them? Well, one of the first films I ever made, it's not the first film, um, but one of the early films I made was this film called Raising Victor Vargas, um, which is this beautiful indie film about um, Puerto Rican kids in the Lower East Side. And, And to some degree, that film was basically which made my entire career. And working on the film, not just not just because people liked it and noticed it, but it gave me it gave me a sense of what what was important to me as an editor, um, telling truthful stories, making something that w- had universal themes to it, and um, directed by this amazing director Peter Sillette. And you know, it obviously has a you know those same things connect to a film like In the Heights. So um, it did help me get to work with, you know, Zach Braff saw that movie and hired me to make Garden State. And um, Paul White saw Raising Victor Vargas and 
hired me to do uh, In Good Trouble. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, In Good Trouble. And, um, and um, you know, I, I really, I'm very thankful I had that experience early in my career. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? It's all about process, you know? Um, you can't be afraid of the process. Don't get overwhelmed by the the bigness of it. You know, break it down into smaller pieces. It's breathe, look in the mirror, like, you know, you've got this, you know, don't be overwhelmed because it is, everyone, everyone gets overwhelmed by the scope of things, but it, the process is what makes, you know, it, it's just about the work, doing the work. And it takes time, it takes time to make something really good. You know, and sometimes you spend a lot of time and it's not any good, but that's okay too. That's what we do as artists. Like we, it's about the work, you know, it's about the, it, it's corny, but it's, it's not about the destination. It's a, about the journey. It's the same thing about, you know, it's about the process, you know, enjoy the process, enjoy what you're doing. I'm really falling in love with editing all over again. The last couple of years, I've just, you know, it helps to work on really great things, but just, I just, um, I love what I do. I love finding things, little kernels, gems, and that's all about process. Um, do you have a goal as a filmmaker? I want to, I just want to inspire future filmmakers and hopefully inspire them enough to, that they want to tell their stories. You know, um, I want to inspire, you know, young, a younger, the next generation to like, just make great art and hopefully hopefully that'll change the world because I think despite, you know, regardless of how well in the Heights does or any of the things I ever make, I, I, I do think that films like Crazy Rich Asians and in the Heights will be part of change. And if I can inspire people to like believe in like art can do th that thing, then that's it right there. That's all I've ever wanted in my, my entire career. Uh, if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Yeah, just be patient. You know, there's a there's a um, there's a saying in the film, "Patience fe," which means patience and faith. And Jesus Christ, if my if I could just tell my younger self that, um, I'm emotional just thinking about it. And you know, um, having patience and faith through this fucking pandemic, especially, is is um, it's been. Uh, you know, it's been challenged for the entire world. And, um, but it is a metaphor to what, to my own experience, you know, for me, for like, I, I wish I, I wish I knew that I could be here today. You know, if I knew that, you know, 20 years ago, because it's, it's hard, you know, you, I, I literally started my career as a PA sleeping on somebody's floor because I couldn't afford an apartment in New York city. And you know, but I was chasing a dream of just making art, you know, somehow. And I wanted to be part of this crazy business. And, but there was definitely moments where I was just like, this is a horrible mistake. <laughs> Am I going to ever get here? <laughs> dad was right. I should have been, you know, my dad was a plumber. You know, I was just like, I should have just been, I just should have taken a like trade or, you know, and, um, but yeah, that's what I would tell myself. Patience and faith. Patience and faith. All right. Is making movies hard? Yes. They're incredibly hard. They they're it's they're it's so hard that it's 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 amazing that anything can ever get made at all, let alone like be something that somebody actually wants to see or moves them into tears, or um is something you want to watch again that you want to do that you you know, that is incredibly difficult. It's, it's literally like trench warfare on steroids. Like you never think that um, if you walk on a set that anything will resemble like a, something that um, you want to digest and pay for, pay other people for like, um, yeah, it's incredibly difficult, but it's also, yeah, it's all worth it. Every single, every single um, minute of it, it's worth it. Oh, well, where should people go to uh, to watch In the Heights and find out more about you? Do you have a website or anything? Or um, just IMDb, probably. That's probably the easiest. But I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I'm such a bad. I'm so. I'm so bad. Yeah, you seem to be doing all right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. exactly. But could I be doing better? <laughs> I have no idea. No, I um. Yeah, I um. You know, I'm mostly. Yeah, I'm mostly just trying to. Um, 
Yeah, I people say, "Do you have a reel?" And it's like, oh, it's kind of my movies. Like it's kind of my, you know, yeah. <laughs> watch Crazy Rich Asians. You know, that's all you need to see. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. You've probably already yeah. seen it, so <laughs> yeah, you probably you probably seen it. You just didn't know it. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Ulrich, what do you remember from our, our conversation with Myron? I remember that Myron was living the dream in in all the ways that you could imagine it. It's like if you're like a young person as a production assistant or listening to this show and you could imagine like the ultimate outcome in whatever department you decide to go to, it's like Myron is at the top of whatever that department is, basically. I mean, he he talks down like, oh, I will never ed- edit an Avengers right. movie or whatever. Right. But it's like, dude, you edited Crazy Rich Asians, fool. You're editing, you edited In the Heights. It's like a, you know, as far as like movies that go that have buzz around them, like you can't really get much higher than either of those, you know? Um, I mean, unless you are literally talking about the next Avengers movie, which I guess is like when you're at that high level, you compare yourself to that, right? But why would you compare yourself? To, I mean, it's not like, Marvel movies are like, oh, that editing in that Marvel movie was just spectacular. Like they talk about other things when they talk about right. Marvel movies. So I don't know why that's the point of comparison for him. Yeah. I don't Maybe know. just money. Like he wants to make more money, probably. Yeah. Which it's we just, all do. It's just, I guess it's just like when you're that that high level, it's like, what else can you compare yourself to except the biggest, biggest budgeted movies in the world? You know, yeah. when you're working on things that are probably are equally as famous as you know, the Avengers, right? I mean, crazy rich Asians, like you, I don't think you can argue that it's not as famous because it was such a big deal when it came out um, and still is now. Uh, But anyways, I mean, I just, you know, it was just like, wow, how do you get to be that guy? (laughs) Basically, like, how do I get to be the directing uh, equivalent of Myron? It's like, I don't know. A lot of luck, I guess. I mean, for someone at the top of his game, he was so sweet. Like I I said to you earlier, like he really... I don't know if he gets um, if he gets a ton of attention for his work. You know, he probably gets a lot of jobs and a lot of job offers and like he's doing well. But I don't know if people are like, Myron, please be on Entertainment Tonight. And Myron, please, let we want to focus on you on Variety. And so I felt like it was really nice. It seemed like he enjoyed talking about process with us. Maybe that's me projecting because I was having a good time too. No, I think he did enjoy the conversation and like the way that he is and he interacts with us is the way I would hope that someone at that level would be, right? Like that wonderful, that humble, that excited to talk about the craft, that interested in the conversation. It's like those sort of things. It was just wonderful. So yeah, I I hope everyone else felt the same way that we did about this conversation because it was heartwarming and I wish I could talk to him for another hour. Yeah, there was so so many nuggets. I will probably will have him back on the show. Um, you know, one day uh, to talk about some of this stuff more in depth, because I mean, there's a lot to dig into, you know, with that guy. But Liz, get shorty. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. This week on Get Shorty, we have yet another Australian filmmaker, Alicia Horsefield, with a film called I'm Your Fool. Here's Alicia to talk about her film. My name is Alicia Horsfield and I'm the writer and director of short film I'm Your Fool. So the first question is why did I choose to make a short versus any other medium? So basically I made this film in the first year of my film degree. With the assignment we were told that we had to make a short film under 10 minutes and if you've seen it I think it's 15 minutes almost. So uh, I made it a short because we kind of had to and because of that film it's challenged me to try and keep pushing to keep short films short under that 10 minute mark, not pushing past the 15. Other half of the question was why this story? So I wrote the story in, like I said, the first year of my uni degree in 2019. I had just freshly turned 18, I'd moved out, you know, I felt like an adult, I was in university. I felt like the world was in my hand. I was living in the Brisbane city and I was seeing someone in my university class and obviously, it, if you've seen I'm Your, I'm Your Fool, it did not end well at all. And that was the first time my heart had ever been broken and I guess I just really wanted to tell my story because I thought this is how other people have felt for sure, you know, feeling betrayed, you know, liking someone and then being like, no, I'm not ready for a relationship and then getting into a relationship a second later. I just really wanted to get my feelings out. I wanted people to feel like, yeah, I felt this too before. How much does that suck? 
And then I made him be on the crew of the film. So I thought it was funny. You know, I thought it was just really important to tell the story. Also, I wanted to keep it for memory for me. You know, years later, it's like a little time capsule. That's what I was feeling at the moment. And I thought I would never, ever feel happiness again. It's like, honey, this was, <laughs> this was only the start. You thought that was sad? The second question is, how did my crew raise funds? So we used... Indiegogo. I didn't want to put incentives because I feel like with a lot of short films they have incentives like for $25 you get a poster, for $50 you get a shirt and merch from the film and I feel like I think it's a cute idea if you already have a fan base following or a pre-established audience and because this is my debut short film no one knew who I was. I just had people from you know high school and my family and scouts you know people who knew me so I really felt like does someone really want an I'm your full shirt or an I'm your full poster? So I guess we just relied on word of mouth and people just being really lovely and just supporting, you know, my dream, you know, just helping me out. And yeah, we just kept posting online. We had a Facebook. All right, the third question. So what did I think would happen before making the film and what happened afterwards? So I loved the film more than I thought I would. I'd have to say especially because of the cinematography. Shout out to Jacob Shrimpton. He did amazing. And I thought I would continue to direct and write and just keep doing that. But um, actually, I went kind of a different direction. That film inspired me to keep writing. But I think I prefer writing than directing. So I wrote and directed my second short film, Lola Cooper Needs a Boyfriend. So um, it inspired me to make a more fun film instead of a really personal film. It also led me into first ADing, so first assistant directing. I've been a first AD on, I think, 18 shorts now. So definitely not what I thought I'd be end up doing, but it was still, you know, really fun to keep writing and directing. And actually, uh, middle of next year, I will be directing. And I've also written my third and I think final short, because I feel like I want to really move into long form, is God Hates Samantha. So it's led me on a path. It's really inspired me to keep writing and telling different stories, especially queer stories and women in film. That's what keeps inspiring me. All right, fourth question. Now that I'm Your Fool is out in the world, what purpose does it serve? I think that it serves a purpose for, you know, people who are just freshly out of high school about to enter uni is that it's okay to feel completely vulnerable and stupid in relationships friendships that you're gonna do stupid things and you're gonna you're gonna regret it and you're gonna feel gross and annoyed at yourself but that is part of growing up you know i don't mean to be preachy i'm only 20 now but you're gonna do stupid things and you're gonna make yourself look stupid and you're gonna do things for people you wish you hadn't done it for and gone to the effort for but it's making memories and you can make a film out of it. So I think it just serves a purpose that people can relate to. Oh, that's so embarrassing. I wish that didn't happen to me. So I think it's just there to be comforting that I'm glad that someone else has felt like this. All right, question five, last question. Now that I'm your fool is out, what would have I done differently? I definitely would have given Kay a monologue at the end because at the end of the film, it's just like a two-minute Amelia monologue. And I really like that in the way that it seems a bit boring and unnecessary for a short film for someone to have a two-minute monologue. But I kind of liked that because I was like, hell yeah, Amelia, speak for two minutes while Kay just sits there going, just doing nothing, absolutely bored. So I would have loved to give him a monologue. I like the way that he didn't get a chance to reply because... I didn't want him I didn't want him to have a chance to explain himself but now watching the final product I feel like that's what the audience was like I don't know what he has to say back and it wasn't a cliffhanger that was a satisfying one it was just an annoying one that makes you go well, what did, what happened and also I would have made it more clear that in the end of the movie Kay has keys in his pockets and he's putting it in the back pocket but on the day we actually didn't get a clear enough shot so and we couldn't get a reshoot of it. So I would have made that more clear that he actually wanted to stay there with Amelia and he didn't want them both to leave. But that is all the questions. So 
Thank you so much for letting me talk about my film on here and bye. So Liz, what did you think of this one? I wrote a lot of notes on this one, but I want to, can I give a caveat because we talk about it this later in the show. I really don't want to hurt anyone's feelings when we talk about <laughs> negative thoughts, when we have constructive criticism on a short. So I'm going to I'm going to couch a lot of what I say to be as kind as possible, because I really want to make sure we're not being too negative. Sure. I really like the concept of these two characters having meaningful conversations in these costumes. It feels like a very, very personal short, but I'm constantly questioning the logic of the characters and the world and it almost feels like and I only say this because this is what I do in my own work it feels like the writer was trying to get something out like the writer had a really shitty relationship with someone who kind of played with their emotions and they wrote it into the short and then they produced it to make themselves kind of see the problem at a distance. Mm -hmm. Like it mm -hmm. felt so personal that I had trouble believing the world and the logic. I, I don't know. Like I, I hope, I hope I'm making myself clear. It didn't feel like it had a life to itself. It felt like it was an exercise in someone's for, for therapy. <laughs> right. Which I'm it, it, I'm for. I'm supportive of film therapy. Just um, but wait, right. I, I please go on and I can add more later. What were you about to say? Uh, no, I mean I get that. I guess at first I was trying to to understand if they were um, high schoolers or college students working at a high school, but I think in the end I just realized they're high schoolers, probably. Oh, right? I didn't know that. I you're right. Now that I'm thinking about it, that makes sense. But they seemed older. They seemed much older. Well, they seemed older. And then there was that line in the beginning where he like looks at uh, a girl's butt and then she's like, oh, that's illegal. Like, right. oh, you're, that's why you I know, so older. I was like, wait, so maybe they're older. But then they are talking about like graduating. So then I guess they could be college students, you know. Um, so that must be what it was, that it was college students like you trying to graduate. They need this community service. They're going to go do it at the high school or I don't know, do high schools make you do community service? I, I don't, I don't really know. Um, I guess that's all uh, not really important. <laughs> yeah. But what's, what the thing that struck me about this was at first I was like, what is this movie? What's going on here? Why do I care about any of this? They're in costumes. Okay, that's fun. Yeah. But then unlike you, <laughs> when they got to the emotional part, I was like, oh, it's, this is about a relationship. But this is about like, you know, being used by somebody who, who who's basically taking advantage of the fact that they know that you are crazy about them. And then this person is using that crazy to do things that they want to do, but they don't actually care. Right. Um, which I thought I think is really interesting because I mean, I think that's very universal. Like we've all been through that. Like I definitely went through that in high school. I think I was probably on both ends of that at one point, either the person who was obsessed and, you know, mistreating somebody because not really... It, intentionally but like when someone's crazy about you and you're not really crazy about them it's like hard like you don't want to shut them down so you like you know, invite it but then like you're leading them on by like being positive and then suddenly and then you're then it's suddenly this bad terrible thing so I've definitely been in the guy's position on the, in this before although I didn't sleep with them um and then in, in the other uh I've also been on the other camp where I've been completely crazy about somebody and then just not at all seeing it and then just sort of completely getting let on also not sleeping with them <laughs> I don't have sex in any of these versions but basically yeah so I really appreciated it I guess is what I'm trying to say because I I, yeah. I felt the authenticity of the character especially the lead character like that felt like emotions that I've either felt or have been explained, you know, expressed to me by somebody else, you know, um, yeah. which I think is good. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of the movie, like it doesn't need to be 14 minutes long. Like it definitely could have been shorter. Um, and there are some things in it that, yeah, I don't know. It just, there's like a little montage of them, you know, like whatever, like going out by the river and stuff and, He's just like, just like, just get to the core, you know, like we don't need like this musical interchange montage, but um, get I don't know. That's just me. I don't, I'm not, I'm not a big montage fan. <laughs> no, but I agree. It doesn't need to be 14 minutes, but I think if you, I was following along in the story and it felt like very con 
convenient for her to be so eloquent about exactly what the situation was. Mm -hmm. And it felt very convenient for the story that he didn't really have an unheard perspective that the audience could benefit from. Like, that's why Mm -hmm. I'm saying it felt like therapy. It felt like very one-sided that someone is confessing, you manipulated me and you know, I like you and all these things that I agree are really, really human, interesting concepts. Right. But to watch just that dialogue scene, I want to be pulled into the drama and the drama just felt like someone saying to an ex lover exactly what they wanted to say when they didn't get to say it before. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I, yeah. And the truth is that in these type of bad relationships, um, you know, th- there is no convenient way to say the things you're actually feeling usually, yeah. because like when you start to say those things, that person will either turn on you in a very worse way to basically stop you from saying these truths or whatever they're, you're yeah. feeling, or they'll leave and, you know, like abandon the conversation. So you don't get a chance to finish. Um, so I agree that it was, it, it didn't feel realistic in, in that way. You know, it's like, it was very much like he just took it like a champ and right. didn't really, <laughs> didn't really like fight back or like, and it was almost like he gave the response that you wish the person would give in right. this kind of situation where, you know, but then like, oh, then he gets, she gets to reject him by taking her hand That's away. That's why or whatever. it felt like rewriting history. It felt like someone rewriting their own personal history. But is that so wrong? Like, that's what no, mo- it's like, great. a lot of movies are. Artist like, therapy. Movies are- it's great. Yeah. But give no, me a close up then. You know, give me a moving camera. Mm-hmm. Give me something visual to look at. Give me slightly better sound. Give me <laughs> moving, moving camera. <laughs> give me something. You want that more. moving camera. <laughs> I do. I don't think this movie needed a dolly shot. That's not what this movie is missing. <laughs> In my opinion. <laughs> but I needed some sort of craft to go with the personal. That's all. Well, I did like the I like the use of wides, especially when they're at the car, you know, they yeah. were like in in tighter and then like they go out wide when he's like trying to take the suit off and stuff and like losing yeah. the car keys or whatever. I also like the little touch where like he won't admit that he lost the car key, but he just did. And like <laughs> that's just like this guy to a, a T like that interaction, like really sums up the character perfectly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do wish after seeing like movies like Moonlight and other movies that deal with like, you know, human relationship drama in a very realistic, authentic feeling way that that's kind of what I want from every drama is it to feel right. super authentic and realistic, but it's just hard to do that. It's so hard to do a movie as well as Barry Jenkins did Moonlight or other filmmakers have done other movies similarly, you know, it's just very, just difficult, Um, you know, and yeah, monologues are not the answer. (laughs) This movie basically has like a lot of monologues. Yes, actually, that's a really good point. I didn't even think about that, that the monologuing is the core of what I'm, what my comment is, Um, but you're, but just to take it back circular, the heart's in the right place. It's trying to be a very authentic yeah. interpersonal drama. Um, and it's a really goofy, fun concept that they're in these ridiculous costumes while it's happening. Um, yeah. So good effort. Good effort. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that like it kind of like I was disinterested in the beginning, but then as the actual like point of the story unfolded, I became more engaged, you know, but it, it was probably like five minutes, six minutes in when I like when I actually get to like, her talking about what's actually on her mind. And then that's when the movie kind of gets interesting. And so, I don't know, I just wish it was shorter. (laughs) But I think I wish most things were shorter, you know, in general, including my own work, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) Just wish things were shorter. I always realize later that it's like, I I thought I had minimized the amount of words I needed in this movie to the absolute bare minimum. And then when I go into editorial, I realize that I have like a hundred, like 50% more words than I need still. Like I could have cut another half of the script down. It would have been better, you know? Yeah. And that's basically what I do in the editing process is cut the other 50% off. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I think there's a lot to like about it. I think the production value was really good. You know, like I thought it was one of the better looking of these indie shorts, you know, like I had a really crisp, clean um, look to it all around. Um, And I liked the makeup. I liked how the makeup got more and more smeared throughout the day. I thought that was a nice touch. Um, So yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot lot of good in there. Um, But I'm, you know, also this is not my kind of movie generally, um, which is another reason why I think it it did a pretty good job to keep me so engaged um, throughout because usually like 
this kind of stuff where people are just talking about feelings the whole time. I'm like, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to make that good, I think. So Alicia, great job. Uh, if we crushed your dreams, let, let us, us know. know. <laughs> Tell us why we're wrong about everything. Although this, this out of all the shorts we've had recently, this has like almost a thousand views. Like this is way more popular. Most of our shorts only have like 50, 100, 200. So I don't know, Alicia must be doing something right. Anyways, time for you Got Mail. Breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. All right. So this week we have another listener email to read. This is from Jason and Matt, and they write, Hey there. Just wanted to drop you a line to let you know how much the podcast has kept us going this past year and continues to be an inspiration. I think that the biggest challenge has been trying to maintain a collaborative process with the casting crew throughout all this and the podcast. Uh woo, I'm confused. Uh, and the, and the, mm, can you read this and the podcast, my listening, I think there's a little bit of a typo here, but I think he means like in the podcast, my listening into the podcast and then on those great conversations about filmmaking when there are few and far between these days, something like that. Okay. Yeah. It was a nice thing. Thank you. <laughs> and they continue to say, uh, my friend and I are shooting our second micro budget feature at the moment, 30 K in upstate New York. And I just finished listening to episode three, one, three. We had our first feature, Walk Away, make it on Amazon Prime during the pandemic, where hopefully we'll have reached the obsessive horror slash thriller nerds who mine those algorithms. Really appreciate it. Keep up the good work, Jason and Matt. Uh, we just, first of all, we want to shout out that um, Walk Away is free on Amazon Prime, free to Prime users. And we want to support Jason and Matt on um, making that first feature. And um but also, that's so nice. Thanks for listening. Which one was 313? Maybe I should go look that up right now. I thought it was uh, Anna and Elizabeth James at first, but I think it wasn't. I think it was the one after Anna Elizabeth James. Is it Michelle? No, it's uh, Jordan and Hudson. Oh, Jordan and Hudson. Yeah, yeah that's Which right. makes sense because these guys are like, you know, in the same kind of groove of like just doing it, like low budget feature, you know? Um, so I think hearing from like-minded low budget feature folks is probably nice for people. Yeah, you know, I don't know, this is like sort of off topic, but um, I've been thinking like lately, you know, we've been having like a, a nice mix of guests. Like we have people like, you know, Myron, who's like working on the, one of the biggest movies out there. And then we have people like, yeah, Jordan and Hudson, you know, or, um, you know, even Michelle Boyner, like working on these small little movies. And it was gonna kind of ask you off air, but I'll just ask you on air. Like, do you want to keep on having like the smaller filmmaker guests or is it really like exciting to talk to the Myrons of the world to you? Well, I think talking to the Myrons who are not the directors and the producers, but are like the cinematographers, the editors, because I think there's something about the way this industry exalts, quote unquote, above the line players that I don't like. And I like the idea mm. that we're creating a little bit more of a conversation with people throughout the crew. And I think there's still a lot to learn. I mean, what I got out of Myron was like, oh, you organized your editorial schedule, not unlike an indie feature, one tenth your budget, you know, like that kind of data right. is important. And his perspective was amazing. So I don't need to go after the, um, you know, the whatever I'm trying to think of famous filmmakers. And for some reason, Zach Snyder's, like, it's Zack Snyder's of the world. <laughs> uh, I would be fine doing high level key crew people. And then our compatriots in the indie film world in a mix of that mm, do you yeah. do you feel like we're missing out <laughs> do I don't know I mean I, I'm not gonna sit here and say I wouldn't want to have John Shu on the show to talk about directing in the heights you know like yeah. I think that would be an awesome conversation um but I I don't think it's like I don't want to miss out on um the small little filmmakers like you know um you know the one I'm editing right now which uh Kate Forzat, who made this little small movie um, called Three Bound in New York, like on a tiny little shoestring shoe, shoe, shoe budget, shot, you know, in 11 days or whatever. And is like, you know, now in the streaming ether of what is like the, in the world of where indie films go. And it's like, I don't know, those conversations are interesting to me, even though like, you know, no one knows who Kate is and you know like yet 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 potentially right or I don't know like that not that many people are going to see the movie versus in the heights like everyone's going to see this movie you know or has already seen this movie right I, I, I don't know like I think it's I think there's there's value to both and I think it's really interesting to talk to both 
of the types of people. But I would like to talk to bigger name directors and writers equally alongside the crew people. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right though. Like no one really, like how many times have you heard an editor of a a hot new movie come on a podcast? Like maybe only on our podcast? (laughs) You know, not not too many, not too many times. So I'm I'm happy that we get to do that too. You know, I never want to. I mean, for me, it's data gathering. So I am personally invested in the answers of people who I think are at our level, because I want to know how did you do it and what can I do, what can I take from them, what can I apply to my own right. career. And when I'm talking to someone who's producing a film that has the budget of like 10 times the value of my life, you know, or, or more hundred times the value <laughs> of my life on the black market, then I don't really get a lot of Intel from them because it's just mm-hmm. so out of my league. So right. I'm not as interested in those conversations, but I certainly think they would help us gain more viewership and more listeners. <laughs> I'm not against yeah. it. It's like this sweet spot that I really enjoy, which is like where the Nelms brothers yeah. and um, the guy, Kevin, who directed the Nicolas Cage movie, mm-hmm. um, you know, these people who are like ultra successful, right? Like they have cracked it in a way that like, you know, 90% of the filmmakers on our show haven't necessarily because they've, they've made their first or second features, but they haven't really gotten up to the level where they're getting multi-million dollar budgets for their, for their projects or getting that chance to make a movie for more than one or 2 million or, or even 500,000. And these guys have, you know, um, the Amber Seelys, sort of, right? I mean, the Amber Seelys, yeah, absolutely. Um, Jennifer Gardner's, you know, like these these people who have like kind of, you know, they've had success with their first or second feature or even third feature, and then they've gotten to like this other echelon level where they're making movies with real budget. Thank you, Jennifer you Reader. Know? Are you thinking when you said Jennifer? Jennifer Gardner? Reader, yes. <laughs> Like Jennifer Reader, I'm sorry. Think of Jennifer. that South Park joke about comparing Jennifer Lopez and Jennifer um, Garner. Anyway, Sean. Sorry, Jennifer time. Reader. Knives and Skin. I was just looking at a film festival that uh, that had screened that movie um, and was on their website, and I was like, oh, they screened Jennifer uh, Reader's film. Like, I want to go to that film festival. So cool. submit. You know. Anyways, yeah, it's just like that's. I love that guest. That's like the yeah. perfect guest. Amber Seeley should be like the the little you know, whatever roadmap for like the guests that we want, you know, is like that person Um, because it's like really helpful for us. And it's also like really exciting to see like where they go next, you know, like what is Amber's next movie going to be? It's like, could be anything. It could be anything. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyways, uh, do you want to talk, you want to talk some uh, YouTube comments? Should I read some of the stuff from uh, our good old pal G Ken? Um, Gary Kennedy for those okay. Okay. <laughs> who don't know. Who in the know. This is also on the same episode that, um, you know, Matt and Jason were referencing um, 313. Uh, G. Ken writes, I really like that you two bring up money in the conversations and not just the film budget, but what the filmmakers do to support themselves. The goal is to make a living uh, making films, but hearing the reality is super helpful and also is more motivational in a way because it shows the filmmakers simply as a person chasing their dreams, which... It's pretty much true for most people. <laughs> thanks, uh, Gary. I, I like Gary. that insight, you know. And thanks for not like really throwing us under the bus for for, for not answer, asking that question of Jordan and Hudson on that episode, which we like, I think we referenced, you know, in the thing that we should have asked that, but we didn't. We asked it on the next one, which is great. On episode 314, GK writes, Ulrich, good luck on your trailer edit. Thanks. And you two need to be some fucking adulting adults and waste your time on Reddit. I was curious, like, does he mean that we shouldn't spend time on Reddit or that we should spend time on Reddit? I'm not sure. Like, You always think the worst of Gary Kennedy. Like, it is so funny to me. Like, every time he has a comment, you're like, is he being mean or is he being nice? Um, No, he's joking. He's saying we should we should we should go on Reddit. But he's making fun of the fact that Reddit is a waste of time. He's joking. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And then lastly, <laughs> since we mentioned episode 314, we can't leave out uh, Charm Star Anderson, who writes on uh, the episode 314, which has Banana Peel Man in it. Uh, Haha, okay. I didn't want to weigh in on Banana Peel Man because it's 100% Ambrose's film, but I'm really glad Liz got the afternoon special feel from it. I was worried that it would be too niche, which is why I also threw in 60s Batman style music and graphics. I was mainly going for straight to VHS, cheap, don't do drugs because I'm a superhero style that was big in the 80s and 90s. 
The poster was almost too obviously inspired by creating Ram Laser, which I do not know what that is. Ram Lazar, so it looks like I think. Ram Lazar. Ram Lazar. Probably. I don't know what it is. So how would I know how to say it? <laughs> but yeah, it looks like you got the reference 1000% correct, which is awesome. And like, I don't know if he just said that in there to make me feel better about myself, but I guess I kind of got it too, at least to a degree, but not to as strong a degree as you did. But, um, but yeah, that's fun. I really like Banana Peel Man. That's a charming ass film. Yeah, it's really fun. cool. Sweet. Um, um, one other thing I wanted to say. Yeah. I just want to say all kinds of things today. Yeah. We, we got an email that we, we, we're we not necessarily going to talk about Well, I thought we were going to say yet. that. Bef- we should say it for Get Shorty. Let's save it for Get Shorty. Okay. Because I, I was going to talk. I know you're going to. I don't even know if we should because she hasn't really responded to us about whether she's comfortable with it or not. Well, but, okay. Um, go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to curb. Go ahead. and then That's I'll- okay. But I mean, I was wondering if it's time for one of us to, uh, you know, to put ourselves in, in the hot seat for Get Shorty next time and, uh, you know, watch one of our movies and, uh, you know, give us uh, ourselves a treatment. <laughs> I just watched one of my older movies um, that I made in college that uh, was a really hard experience for me. But I watch it now and I'm like, man, I like this movie. This movie's fine. <laughs> You're like, I still like it. Um, I, uh, but I mean, I wonder supportive. what you would think. You, you, you might really hate it. I mean, so, you know. I think this begats a larger conversation. It doesn't have to be time consuming, but just the concept of, well, first of all, let's say it out loud. So we broke down a film and get shorty a few weeks ago and hurt someone's feelings, essentially. And yeah. we don't have to go into the details. Like I know you alluded to that too. We don't have to talk about it. But ultimately, I think it felt shitty. <laughs> yes. To like that this person didn't know that Get Shorty was supposed to be constructive criticism. It felt shitty that we it felt shitty that we hurt their feelings. It felt shitty right. that they were deterred from filmmaking because of things that we said. And so, yeah, I I was thinking I was like getting ready for the day earlier today. And I was just like shitting on my own work. I was like, oh, I could talk about that. I should have used moving camera on this short and I should have had a much better coverage plan. Like I'm on board. I'm bored. Let's put ourselves in the hot seat and and dole it out and take it because the, the whole point is not to make other filmmakers feel bad and put them down it's just to be honest and yeah and constructive about how to make work better and we're all learning every time we make a movie and i mean there's so many things that i see in all my work that i wish i could change and that i wish didn't happen the way they did you know including the feature i'm finishing now it's like oh why didn't i do this why did i do that and it's like it's just too late to change it's like i made this decision this is what i decided to do and i gotta stick with it and you know lesson learned for the next one you know you know, hopefully that I get a chance to make a next one. And, you know, by God, I think I will. I just need to like really make it happen. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I just wanted to, I wanted to somehow, you know, not make it just feel like we're Siskel and Ebert, you know, or like a couple mm-hmm. of jerks, like just like, you know, throwing down decrees on, on films. Like, it's just our opinion. We're probably wrong most of the time, you know, like it's just how we feel. Um, I, I talked to a friend the other day about Army of the Dead, which I mean, my God, I was not a fan of this movie. I'm sorry, Zack Schneider. I'm usually a big fan of his work, but this one, holy crud. I just, oh God, it was painful. Anyways, so I was talking to him about this movie and he loved it. He thought it was great. He enjoyed every minute of it. He was in, on board from the beginning. He really liked it. And we had a similar conversation about Nomadland, which I also can't stand. Oh, I like Nomadland a lot. Really? I mean, every, you and everybody else in the world does. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, like, and he was just like, oh, Rick, it's, this movie wasn't made for you. Like, this is not your movie. There's a lot of people who enjoy it. Like, it's okay that you don't like it and someone else does. Like, that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with the world. That doesn't mean yeah. it, people are idiots. It's just like people, some people like it, some people don't. And that, that's sort of his philosophy on everything. It's the same person. He's like, oh, yeah. Like, you know, you can love Army of the Dead. And then you can also think it's terrible, but it doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It just means you didn't re- react to it like someone else did. And it's like, you take that sort of philosophy to every movie and it's like, there are no bad movies in that version of the world, which yeah. I don't know. It's kind of beautiful, kind of stupid at the same time. It's like both to me. No, I, I like what you're saying though. It's like, we're just two people giving their opinions. Um, yeah. But I, I don't like to think of it as an objective evaluation it's just how we reacted to it and we found in our community other people are not being candid with us about our work and so we're trying to it's true 
um, put forth that service, but uh, there's a lot of awkwardness that comes out of the get shorty segment. I find, or that so, can, you know, yeah. And and I think honest, constructive criticism where it's coming from love is like the most important thing. And I think that maybe uh, this person who we can't consent to talking about on the show yet didn't feel the love. And if she's yeah. listening, which I don't know if she is, but just I hope that she knows that it, it came from a place of respect because we like the movie enough to talk about it and we wanted to bring it on the show. And we felt there was so much value in what she had made and, and entertainment, you know, to be yeah. honest as well. And, you know, that's why we, we, we felt comfortable talking about it the way that we did. And I don't think she felt any of that, you know, and we tried to communicate that to, to, to this person, but uh, you know, hopefully they decide to come on and, and, and discuss it with us. Cause I, I really would love to have an open discussion with this person about the, the, this film, the get shorty segment, the podcast, us and uh you know if we had a movie that we put out there for you know you or i to to talk about oh, uh, you know constructively you i think maybe that would help it. that person Please, yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know <laughs> i would like to invite her to just shit on my movie like i yeah, would no, be happy absolutely. please yeah totally offer out there it's enough uh of the emotional therapy session um but yeah yeah if you want to be like all the people who interact with us who email us who comment whatever it is we love that that is like part of the show that i think um Arik and i enjoy the most please send us questions comments suggestions to podcast and making movies is hard.com if you like the show you can leave us a review on itunes you could support the show on patreon uh www.patreon.com slash mmih podcast give whatever you can thank you in advance it genuinely goes to the making of the show and finally, check us out, follow us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. And then thanks for listening, everybody. And thanks to Myron Kirsten for coming on the show and to Donna Reed and Marilyn Lintel from Storyline Public Relations for setting this up. They're fantastic. Uh, check out our website at makingmovesishard.com where you can find links to the things we talked about in this episode. And thanks to editor, I don't know, me or Cameron, whoever ends up doing it, for doing the editing. And thanks everyone again for listening and we'll talk to you guys next week. Episode 314, JK writes. GK. Um, GK. <laughs> Gary, Why Gary. did I say JK? God. <laughs>